Matthew chapter 15. It's all about Jesus. The other day I was talking with the contractor that's helping us with some work on the new place we're moving into, and it was just one of those moments, had an opportunity to share a lot. And, you know, he, he doesn't know me, so he thought that I'd been this way all my life. And I told him, I haven't been this way all my life. In fact, even though it's been 39 years, if you'd have known me then before I became this way, you'd have been like a lot of my friends, shocked that I became this way. And I began to just share with him my story and, and uh, you know, really how I came to Christ. And the bottom line was, for me and for him, as I shared, it's really about Jesus. Is Jesus Christ invaded my life and promised to not only forgive me, but to keep me and to give me a sense of purpose and direction in life and keep me focused on that. I was afraid. I was terrified coming into this Christian life. I was afraid of failure. I was afraid of not being able to keep my commitment. I was afraid of not being able to last or endure as a believer. But Jesus assured me that he would keep me. And he has. He's kept me. It's all about Jesus. Well, fast forward several years later. I don't know why I was doing this, but I was sitting on my couch. I lived in a home with three other Christian brothers. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm all by myself. And I'm just thinking about how my life had changed over the last several years. And the first thing I began to think about was, well, I don't do this anymore. I don't smoke anymore. I don't drink anymore. I don't do drugs anymore. I don't have sex anymore. I don't, these, so I rattle off the things I, want, I wasn't doing anymore. And then I realize, is that the essence or the sum total of my life? Is that now I just don't do all these things? And the answer quickly came to my heart. No, it's much more than that. It's all about Jesus. Jesus now lives inside of me. That's the big difference. That's the big change. I've got a purpose in life. I've got a focus in life. I've got a direction to go in and and work to do for him. It's all about Jesus. Well, fast forward a number of years later. As the church was just getting started on the Monterey Peninsula, and things were exciting, and there was a full auditorium, and people were anticipating what was going to be happening next, and all these things were going on. I had this vision, this picture, one night as we were having a service. I had this picture of Jesus being there in the room, but he was sort of up in the rafters, looking down on our excited, growing congregation. And I just watched him as he was watching the congregation. And I, as the pastor, was thinking, I wonder if Jesus feels welcomed and invited into our gathering. Or are we doing these things, the machinery and the mechanisms of ministry, are we doing these things without him? Is the mechanism or machinery of ministry what's driving all of the things we're doing, or is Jesus really involved? That was an important question for me to ask of myself. Lord, how much are you involved in who we are and what we do? Again, it's all about Jesus. Now, in our passage this morning, the Pharisees and the scribes, they never got that. They never came to the place when they recognized it was all about Jesus. For them, it was about tradition. 
and their version of it. For them, it was about keeping rules and regulations. For them, it wasn't about Jesus at all. It wasn't about life. It was about religious duty. The very thing that Jesus, of course, wants us to avoid at all costs. Just getting into a pattern of religious duty, doing things because it's the religious thing to do, and then neglecting and forgetting him. Now the context is that Jesus, of course, had been doing many mighty works, teaching many wonderful things. The news about him was spreading everywhere. His popularity was growing. The multitudes were increasing. And news of all of this, most of which was happening in the northern part of Israel in Galilee, news of this traveled south down to Jerusalem, where the religious center of Judaism existed at the time, the epicenter of traditional Judaism, Jerusalem. And the religious leaders from Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the scribes, they came up into the region of Galilee, and when they got there, they saw that their rules, their traditions, their approach to the way Judaism ought to be practiced wasn't happening, and it upset them. So they first, according to Mark's gospel, challenged Jesus' disciples, and eventually it was a direct challenge to Jesus himself. So we come to our text in verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The accusation, the legalistic accusation against Jesus' disciples Why do they transgress the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, they weren't talking about not going into the bathroom and doing a good job of cleansing their hands so that they can be germ-free when they eat their meal. That wasn't what was being talked about here. What What they were talking about was that they didn't observe the tradition of the elders that had been passed down for centuries through the rabbis. See, the rabbis had interpreted the law of Moses. First, they began to interpret it orally. They added their oral commentaries, similar to, you know, Bible studies that are recorded on CDs. These oral traditions about how the law of Moses should be applied began to circulate. Eventually, they began to write these oral interpretations down, and they grew in importance. What the rabbis said about the law of Moses grew in importance and became almost as important as the law of Moses itself. 
In other words, what man said about the Bible became nearly as important as the Bible, and eventually what man said about the Bible became as important as the Bible, and then eventually what man said about the Bible eclipsed the Bible and became more important than the Bible. And part of their tradition was this very specific methodology of washing hands to keep themselves ceremonially clean. Because they felt that if they didn't do it according to this prescribed methodology, and and, uh, one commentator writes it was like taking the equivalent of two half eggshells of water, running it down your elbow, cleaning and washing your hands and then having it run off the end of your fingertips and then repeating the process going the other direction so it ran off of your elbow. And if you didn't do it that exact specific way, and then you touched your food and they used to eat with their hands in those days, they'd take the bread and slop up the food and stick it in their mouth. If you didn't do it that way, if your hands weren't ceremonially clean, then that meant that you would be touching the food, making it unclean, and you'd be bringing it into your mouth, and you would become unclean, and thus disqualified from worshiping God. That was their tradition. Problem with all of this? Nowhere can you find such a practice in the Bible. Nowhere in the law of Moses does it prescribe a specific methodology of hand washing, but they elevated it above Scripture itself. Did the scribes and the Pharisees care about the miracles that were going on? Did it concern them? Was it a blessing to them that people were receiving life and hope and deliverance and ministry from Jesus? Was it all about Jesus to them? No. It was all about tradition. It was all about rules. It was all about regulations. And that was the problem. And so they came from Jerusalem with this accusation, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? The question should have been, how are they doing with the law of Moses? But instead, why do they transgress the tradition of the elders? And so Jesus goes right back at them. And Jesus answers them with a question. Uh, Before we go there, who is the legalist anyway? Who is this person that's a legalist? How do you get to be a scribe or a Pharisee? Well, the legalist is the person that has a hard time grasping grace. The legalist is the person that doesn't understand justification by faith and doesn't experience it. The legalist is the person who doesn't understand what it means to walk with God or to be set apart to God by faith through the Holy Spirit. The legalist is doing it himself. The legalist relies on self-effort. The legalist relies heavily upon his or her own works. I remember when we started in Monterey, and uh, I was asked by a group of people to assume the role of pastor of their church and to help them become a Calvary Chapel. All of these people that were part of this fellowship, they were dear people, they were committed people, but they, were, they had all had in their background that they were part of Shiloh Youth Revival Centers. That was a series of Christian communes that existed all over the country. I'd been part of Shiloh myself uh, years earlier, so I knew what they were about a little bit. And Shiloh was a good thing. It was Christian communes, you know, people would get off the streets and get off of their drug habits and 
and learn how to work hard and depend on each other and contribute to the common good. And they'd study the Bible and evangelize. And it was a really good thing in many ways. But there were hints of legalism that crept into Shiloh in various places, you know, so that they, they just were mixing law and grace uh, and, and, and confusing things. So I remember when I took that fellowship, I thought, you know, I just really need to get them founded and grounded in grace in the grace of God. So I started teaching the book of Romans. And I would hear these whisperings through the fellowship from time to time. What's this grace stuff that he's talking about? What's, what's this grace? What's grace about? Because they didn't understand it. They didn't grasp it. They weren't feeling it. They weren't experiencing it. What it means to just flow under the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God, and just live in that, knowing that we're sinful, knowing that we're weak, knowing that we have great needs, but just living under the glory of God's grace and just trusting him to be good to us, not because we're good, but because he's good. Not because we deserve it, because he's that way. And just living under grace and being strengthened by it, being blessed by it, having that be the power behind our lives, the grace of God. The way that we live, the, 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 the supernatural element of, of the life that we live, the grace of God. So they would whisper, what's this grace stuff? What's this grace stuff? We would just pray and seek the Lord, and hopefully we'd, we'd be able to get it. But the legalist doesn't get grace. The legalist doesn't understand it. So they came to Jesus and to his disciples with this accusation, and Jesus responds to their accusation. And how does he respond? In verse 3, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? In other words, he answers them, with a question of their own. You know, I know, I don't like it when this happens to me, but in this case, it was completely warranted. Of course, Jesus did exactly the right thing. If I have to encourage somebody or exhort somebody and I come to them and say, you know, brother, it'd be great if you'd start doing a little bit more of this or a little bit less than that. And instead of paying attention to what I say, they just blow that off and they come right back and they say, well, what about you? What about the stuff that you do? What about the sin in your life? I hate it when that happens. And I hate it when that happens. And, and that's what's going on here. Why do your disciples transgress the transgression? Well, why do you transgress the commandment of God? Because of your tradition. But in Jesus' case, of course, it was entirely warranted. Because they were guilty. And they needed to hear the truth. And he spoke the truth to them in love. Now, today we have traditions of our own. And sometimes our new traditions are traditions of non-traditionalism, which become traditions. You know, like the groups that are saying, well, you know what, the Bible. We, we admire the Bible, but we're not really quite sure what it says or what it means. And so when we open up the Bible in front of you, it's a discussion. It's all up for grabs. We don't have any concrete or solid things to say about it. We can't definitively say, this is what this passage means. Now, let me just pause there for a second and just say that there's an entire field of Christian study and discipline called hermeneutics. And Herman's not the first name and Nudic's the last name. But hermeneutics is the science of interpreting scripture. And the basis of hermeneutics is that every single passage of Scripture has a specific and intended meaning, 
and interpretation that God has assigned to it. And it's the work of the Bible interpreter to figure out what the Bible is actually meaning in its context and according to its historical importance and how it fits with the other parts of the Bible, etc. So we come, we come here from the perspective it's possible to know what the Bible says and what it means and what passages teach. But in certain groups, it's a discussion. It's, you know, it's up for grabs. I don't know for sure. You don't know for sure. None of us knows for sure. So let's just throw it out there and we're all just a bunch of we don't know for sures. Well, that's become a non-tradition, which has become a tradition. So if you come in to a group like that and you say, no, this is what that means. This is what the text is teaching. This is what Jesus had to say about it. And this is how that's to be interpreted. That would be viewed as being almost heretical in a group like that. Because you're violating their non-traditionalism, which has become a tradition. I remember being back in school years ago, and the school that I was attending at the time brought in a new academic dean. His name is Dr. DePiner. He's with the Lord now. And uh, anyway, Dr. DePiner came in, and he brought in a new tradition. He took 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for rebuke and correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And he said, you see, this is what the Bible is for. The Bible is for making us wise to salvation and it's for teaching us doctrine and all of the scripture is inspired as long as that is what the Bible is talking about. If the Bible is talking about salvation, if it's talking about training in righteousness, if it's talking about correcting us or rebuking us, then the Bible is inspired. But where it's talking about other things, not necessarily. And as soon as I heard him say that, I thought he's bringing in a new wind of doctrine into this, this school. I can't listen to anything more he says. He doesn't have full confidence in a full Bible. He doesn't believe that from Genesis to Revelation, wherever the Bible speaks, if it speaks on matters historical, it's inspired. If it speaks on matters that can be verified or disproved archaeologically, it's inspired, and of course it's proved ultimately archaeologically. But if, you know, if it's not speaking on those, he said, it's not necessarily inspired. Well, he was bringing in a new non-tradition, which was becoming a tradition, and guess what happened to that particular school after I graduated? It went the way of all flesh. It doesn't exist anymore. It can't survive that kind of thinking. It can't survive that kind of teaching. You see, and so there are traditions which spring out of non-traditionalism which become traditions themselves. That's the problem. So Jesus said, why do you do this? Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And then he gives the illustration of how they were doing that. You see, God's commands were clear. Verse 4, God said, honor your father and mother. God says, if you don't do this, if you curse your father and mother, it's the death penalty. But you say, he said to the scribes and Pharisees, you say that whatever my parents would have been profited by concerning what I have and what I own, well, all of that's been dedicated to God. It's all a gift to God. Therefore, 
I can't really help my parents because everything I have has been dedicated and given to God. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, just imagine you have a, a house full of furniture. You've got a living room with couches and perhaps a couple of recliners and the ideal living room, recliners. Uh, you've, got, you've got this house full of furniture and then you've got the kitchen full of you know, cookware and utensils and lots of food in the pantry and you've even got a freezer out in the garage full of food and all of that. And you say, all that I have has been dedicated to God. It's all his. The furniture's his. The cooking utensils are his. The cookware is his. The food in the refrigerator is his. The food in the freezer is his. It's all his. But then down the road are your parents living and they need some food and maybe they need some furniture. Well, I can't give the food or the furniture to my parents because after all, it's been dedicated to God. And they use that little technique to avoid the responsibility of honoring their own parents. They were doing that intentionally. And Jesus uncovered their scam. He, he pointed it out. Why do you invalidate the commandment of God because of your tradition? The Bible's clear. Honor your father and mother. But you've invalidated the Bible by your little technique of saying, this is Corbin, this has been dedicated to God. Why do you do that? You're hypocrites, Jesus said to them. You're hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied about people like you who draw near to me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's just vain. It's like in the days of Malachi. It's like in the days of the prophets where they were bringing the sacrifices and they were bringing their worship and they were giving all these things to God, but their hearts were a million miles away from the Lord and they didn't understand a thing that the Bible said about loving God or loving others. And God said, I'd rather have you not bring your sacrifices at all. I'd rather have you just get your hearts right and really start to seek me in sincerity and really begin to seek me in truth and begin to seek me because you mean it, not just because you're trying to fulfill some religious duty or obligation. So the legalism was a cover-up, really, in many ways, for their disobedience in their own lives. Did you catch that? Oh, they were really good at hand-washing. They knew how to take the water and let it run down and drop off the, the elbow. And they knew how to get it to drop off the other way down the index finger. They knew how to do that. But they couldn't even take care of their parents. You see, what you do if you're a legalist is you accentuate the religious strengths of your life. You make those things the things that you focus on, and you make those things the, the things that are obvious to others as a cover-up of the ways that you're obviously failing to live for God. It's a masquerade. It's a charade. It's what a hypocrite does. A hypocrite takes the mask, puts it in front of him, and wears the mask and says, this mask that you see, that's me. But behind the mask, there's an entirely different reality. That's the hypocrite. The hypocrite was literally one who wore the mask. One who wore the mask. And that's endemic. It's part of. It's connected to. It's intertwined with. 
what legalism is all about. There it is. Why do you do this, Jesus said. So after that rebuke, stinging rebuke, obviously there were people that were around. And at verse 10 he says he called the multitudes to himself. Where did they come from? Well, they were hanging around. And some of them no doubt heard what Jesus had said, and they were in on this whole discussion. So he called the multitudes to himself. Why did he do that? Well, he wanted to teach them. He wanted to give them some truth. So he said to them, hear and understand. Verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, that defiles the man. It's not what goes in that defiles. It's not the tradition. It's not... You know, you're unclean because you didn't properly wash your hand according to tradition. So you touched the food and your food became unclean and then you took it into your mouth and now you became unclean. It's not that. It's not what goes into the mouth as a result of your failure to observe the traditional interpretation of the rabbis. It's not that. That's not what defiles, but what comes out of the mouth, that's what defiles. In other words, it's what comes out of the life. It's what comes out of the mouth. That's what defiles a man. In other words, Jesus is saying these traditions that the Pharisees and the scribes have been observing, they have nothing to do, nothing to do with the true meaning of what it means to be clean or unclean. It's not about the traditions. It's not about the food. Now, we have to be careful here because someone will take this. Someone, maybe even someone here. No, not here. Someone will take this and they'll say, well, Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles, it's what comes out of the mouth. So it doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter what I see. It doesn't matter what I hear, what I take in. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what goes out. And so I can look at pornography. I'm free now. Jesus said I'm free to look at pornography because it doesn't matter what comes in. No. He's not talking about moral uncleanness here. He's talking about ceremonial uncleanness as observed by the Jews. And what the Pharisees and scribes were doing had nothing to do with righteousness. But moral uncleanness is an entirely different matter. The person who allows through the eye gate pornography to come into his mind That'll find its way down into the heart and it begins to corrupt the being. It begins to corrupt the soul of that person. Where they become less human than they were before. And they become degraded. The same is true when they ingest through the ear gate, say, something like raunchy music with wrong and immoral kinds of lyrics, suggestive lyrics, violent lyrics perhaps. And they ingest that in through the ear gate. It does the same thing. It finds its way down into the mind and down into the heart and down into the soul. And it corrupts the individual. You know, somebody could use this and they could say, well, great. Jesus said it's not what goes into the mouth that it defiles the man. So I can drink battery acid when I eat my lasagna. Isn't this great? I'm free to drink battery acid. Let's go for it. Okay, glass of battery acid, plate of lasagna, good combination. Well, these moral defilements are like drinking battery acid for the soul. 
It'll destroy us, ultimately. Jesus isn't addressing that particular issue at this point in his study. Remember, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's forbidden because it's bad. God says, off limits to sin. Why? Because if you mess with this stuff, it's stronger than you are. I'm telling you, the Lord would say, I'm telling you, it's stronger than you are. It's smarter than you are. It's more deceptive than you are clever. And it's got more power than you have to resist it. Don't mess with it. It's bad. It's forbidden because it's bad. Play with it. It's like drinking battery acid. It'll destroy you. It has its consequences. And so he gives to the multitudes this real clear statement. It's not what goes in ceremonially. It's not about their traditions. It's what comes out of the mouth. That defiles the man. Verse 12, Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? What do you think the answer is to that question? Do you think Jesus knew that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Yeah, yeah, he knew. He intended, maybe we could say that, he intended to offend them. Well, that wasn't nice of Jesus. He exposed hypocrisy with truth because hypocrisy was the enemy of righteousness. Just like you'd kill a rabid dog that entered into your neighborhood to save the population. He exposed hypocrisy. He let it know, be known for what it was because those who adopt hypocrisy and legalism are going to be destroying not only themselves but others. So yeah, he intended to offend them and to make it public. But he answered and said, verse 13, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into the ditch. I love this. This is dealing with hypocritical legalists. What's the best way to handle them? Well, Jesus said, listen, if they've not been planted by my heavenly father, they're going to be uprooted. Other words, they're going to be judged. Good way of saying they're going to be judged. They're going to have their day. Just realize that. But then practically, what do we do? How do we handle the legalistic, hypocritical types that use religion as a battering ram and a bludgeon upon people's hearts? Jesus said, let them alone. Just let them alone. Marginalize them. Ignore them. Just set them aside in your mind. Don't worry about them. Just let them alone. Because they're blind leaders of the blind, and if they keep doing that, then... Both will fall into the ditch. Eventually, their doctrine and their lives are going to implode. Nothing's going to come of it. Let them alone. Just let them alone. As for those who want to continue in truth, what do we do? Well, we continue studying the scripture. We try to find out, what does the Bible actually teach about grace? What does the Bible actually say about justification and salvation and what it means to walk with God? Let's Let's keep doing that. Let's keep studying that. Let them alone. We'll keep doing what we're doing. We'll keep teaching the truth. We'll keep serving the Lord. We'll keep walking in his grace. So Barnabas, uh, when the church was being formed, he travels up to Antioch in Syria. 
and he sees a bunch of Gentiles coming to Christ. It was a fantastic thing that God was doing. And you know what? They were eating ham sandwiches for lunch. That's not something that the Jew would allow. And, and Barnabas, he saw the changes that were in their lives, and he saw the grace of God. And so what did he do? He was glad, and he encouraged them that with purpose with heart of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Hey, you've got grace. You're experiencing it. Just continue with the Lord. Just keep doing what you're doing. And then Paul, when he was in Antioch in Pisidia, Asia Minor, on his first missionary journey, people were coming to Christ, a bunch of Gentiles, uh, proselytes, God-fearers. They were following Paul and Barnabas. And what did Paul and Barnabas do? As they instructed that group of people. It tells us in Acts chapter 13 that he spoke to, they spoke to them and persuaded them to do what? Continue in the grace of God. That's what we do. Just let them alone. You just continue in the grace of God. Let them alone. Just ignore them. Don't, don't worry about them. Just ignore them. Set them aside. Marginalize them. They're not important. At this point, thank God for this, Peter answered and said, to him, explain this parable to us. So Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So Peter wants to know the meaning of the parable. What parable? The parable in verse 11. That not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. That's what Peter wants to know. What's the meaning of that? What does that mean? Jesus explains that it's not the physical food and the way that it's eaten and the way your hands were washed before you ate that makes someone unclean. That's just food. It enters your mouth, it goes into the stomach, goes through the digestive process, is eliminated through the bodily functions. Everybody understands that. But it's the stuff that comes out of the mouth that defiles us because it comes from a deeper well. It comes from the well of the heart. This is why Proverbs 4 tells us in verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. The heart, the inner life, that's all important. What I say ends up becoming a reflection of what I am in here. What I think here and what I am here. What I say becomes a reflection of what I am here and what I think here. So I've got to take care of what I think here and what I am here. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issue of life. Focus on that. That's what Jesus is saying. And it's a blessing to be able to focus on that. Isn't it great? Do you love it? That the Lord allows us to sit before him each day, open Bibles, reading his word, praying through his word, asking him to speak to us, and he does through his word. Don't you love that? Don't you love it that he corrects our thinking? We were off the wall with that thought, and we were incorrect about that assumption, and we were, you know, unnecessarily occupying ourselves in this area, or maybe we were committing that sin. And he speaks to us. 
And he shows us what was wrong. He shows us what needs to change. He does it regularly. He helps us keep our heart with all diligence, if we're willing. And then what we say is flavored by the condition of the heart. And what we do is shaped by the thinking and what we are inside. That's the idea here. That's what Jesus is saying. Sort of interesting to me, you know, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, you know, he was writing to believers who had been under the attack of these kinds of legalists. And they were threatening to totally change the gospel, or trying to anyway. And Paul said, listen, the gospel that these legalists are preaching, it's not even, an, it's not even gospel. It's not even worthy of the title good news. It's not gospel at all. There is no other gospel other than the one we've already preached to you in Jesus. And so Paul lays out in Galatians for four chapters the doctrine of the gospel. By grace through faith are you saved. It's not Jesus Christ saves us plus this thing or that thing. It's Jesus Christ himself saves us alone. That's the gospel of grace. And Paul gives the doctrine of that for four chapters. And then he gets to chapter 5 and he, and he says, Brethren, stand fast in the liberty by with which Christ has made you free. And don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't fall under the spell of legalism anymore. Stay free from it. And then he gets down to verse 13 and he says, Brethren, you've been called to liberty. You're free. You're free. Sins are forgiven. There's no condemnation. You're not guilty anymore in God's eyes. You're justified by faith. You're free. But don't use this freedom you have as an occasion to serve yourselves or to serve the flesh. But use the freedom that you have to serve one another in love. That's how the freedom is to be used. We've been given freedom, not just so we can live for ourselves. We've been given freedom so that we can live for others, live for the Lord, love him, and live for others. That's how we've been given freedom. That's why we've been given freedom. So use it that way, Paul is saying. And then he goes on and he starts talking about the, the, the blessing of walking in the Spirit. He says, walk in the Spirit and you'll not carry out the deeds of the flesh. You'll not live a flesh-dominated life if you're walking in the Spirit. And then, and you can read the chapter later if you want to and just fill in the blanks, but then he describes two kinds of behavior systems. The first behavior system has to do with what are called the works of the flesh. And he describes them. The works of the flesh, which are evident, are. And the list that he gives that describes this system of the works of the flesh sound very much like Jesus' words here in Matthew 15. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and fornications and false witness and blasphemy and so on. The works of the flesh. They sound very much like this list that Jesus gives in Matthew 15. And he, and he describes them. And then he talks about another system. And that's called the fruit of the Spirit. We're probably more familiar with that list, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, temperance, faithfulness, the fruit of the Spirit, right? So you've got in that chapter the works of the flesh described. You've got in that chapter the fruit of the Spirit described, all in the context 
of walking in the Spirit. Now, now tune in here, okay? Pay attention. This is important. Why does Paul go through that? Why does he give us the works of the flesh and describe what those are, and then the fruit of the Spirit and describe what that is in the context of what it means to walk in the Spirit? I'll give you the answer that I think is the answer. I think he gives us the two systems as a way to understand the difference between walking in the flesh and the spirit. So that if, for example, there's a circumstance that comes into my life and all that I'm doing is worrying about it and fretting about it and anxious about it and being angry about it and firing off at people about it and becoming miserable to be around because of it, what does that tell me? Well, that's really consistent with the works of the flesh in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh, distress and worry and all those kinds of things, very consistent with that. That tells me that if those are the things that are being produced in my life, I must be walking in the flesh. I must be, because that's what's being produced in my life. The anxiety, the worry, the fear, the throwing you know, projections against others and defensiveness and all those kinds of things. I must be walking in the flesh. I must be relying on, on myself. I must be trusting in my own ability. I must be somehow walking in the flesh. But if that same circumstance comes in my life and what I'm experiencing is peace and joy, a sense of calm, a sense of patience with the process, etc., what does that tell me? That tells me that at that time in my life, I must be operating in the Spirit. I must be walking in the Spirit because only the Holy Spirit can produce those kinds of characteristics. Now, why is that important? It's important because... See, I'm always answering my own questions. It's important because I need to know what is it to walk in the Spirit? What does it mean? What does it look like? Well, walking in the Spirit means this. Walking in the flesh means this. And it can happen a hundred times a day where there's this evaluation going on. Ooh, that just seems like the flesh. And what's needed there? Confession, repentance, get back into relying on the Holy Spirit again instead of myself. And it can be a hundred times a day that that's the reaction, more likely several times a day. But just the need to, to stay focused so that the heart is dominated by the Holy Spirit and is being controlled by the person of the Holy Spirit, the one that lives inside of us, so that what comes out of our lives, what comes out of our mouth, what comes out of our actions is consistent with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, temperance, faithfulness. Jesus said that's the thing to focus on. And someone once said, and I love this, the heart of Christianity is Christ in the heart. I like that. The heart of Christianity is Christ in the heart. That's what Paul basically said in Colossians 1, that the great mystery that he had been preaching and teaching among the Gentiles is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for what the great mystery is that Paul had been preaching among the Gentiles? And among the people, 
the great thing that had not been revealed before, but now was revealed, the great secret for life, the secret behind all true living as a Christian. You ready for what the secret was? This is it, the mystery that he'd been preaching to the Gentiles everywhere he went. Here it is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's it, that's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The heart of Christianity is Christ in the heart. That's it. It's all about Jesus, isn't it, folks? It's all about Jesus. Not about tradition and adherence to it. It's not about legalism. It's not about coulds and shoulds and woulds. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his ability. It's all about his power, his person. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you and bless you that you have taken what had been and given it a brand new wineskin and poured your new wine into it. You've taken the old structures of legalistic Judaism and religious observance and you exchanged for it the life of the new covenant. You exchanged for it truth and grace and love and relationship with you. It really is all about you, Jesus. It really is. But here we are. We so easily forget it. We're so easily blind, Lord, to our own tendency to rely on ourselves or to be legalistic or to emphasize some aspect of religious performance in order to make up for some other deficiency in our lives. It's easy for us to do it, Lord. It's easy for us to forget what grace means. It's easy for us to forget that you love us and that you're for us and that you live inside of us and that you've given us all that's necessary to live a victorious life trusting in you. Forgive us of that, Lord. Wash us from it. Renew us now as we depend and wait upon you. Teach us what it means to walk in the Spirit. And if you're here with us this morning and you've never made a personal commitment to Jesus, you just need to know that he loves you so much. He really does. He loves you so much he died for you. He died on a cross, not... just to fulfill some obligation of history. But he died on a cross in obedience to his Father and because of his love to redeem the world. He paid for our sins. He died so we didn't have to. He was crucified so we wouldn't need to be. That's how, that's how severe his love is. And then he rose from the dead. And if you've never said yes to that love and never invited Jesus to come in, you can do that this morning. And you can pray a simple prayer that goes like this. Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner. And I confess that I need to be saved. I ask you to forgive me of all that I've done. And I ask you to give me a new life. 
and a new start. I ask you, Lord, that you enable me to live for you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my master and be my savior. And if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, Jesus will take you seriously and he will indeed forgive you and come in because he died for you. And he'll begin to change your life. You're going to need to tell somebody about it. And I encourage you to come up and tell me or one of the pastors about it afterwards. Tell the people that brought you. Tell them that you made a commitment this morning. But the bottom line is, he took you seriously if you took him seriously. And as we take communion now, as we enter into the observance of the Lord's Supper, you can take it with us. You can enjoy this table of the Lord, this Lord's Supper, as all other believers will enjoy it. So thank you for it. Let's just worship.